everyone, and welcome to the Cabot Cove Gazette, the world's best and most fabulous Murder, She Wrote podcast. I'm your co-host, TJ West. I'm the fabulous Bridget Keys. She is definitely fabulous. And this week, we are talking about the 20th episode of Season 3, The Cemetery Vote. So, Bridget has the unenviable task of yeah. giving the summary for this episode. So, what is this episode about? It's tricky because the episode hinges so much on stuff that happened in the past. It does, yes. Jessica arrives in this small town in Idaho, um, and I'm already like, I'm not going to like this episode because I'm getting powder keg vibes. And, uh-huh. And, um, That's exactly what I thought when I started watching it. <laughs> the rural episodes are, can be very challenging. And um, there's this whole history where her friend... And it's very unclear how they're friends, but he's much young. He's like a generation younger. Uh, mm-hmm. He has died and she's there supporting his wife. And the guy, the dead guy's dad thinks that um, it, he was actually murdered. It wasn't just a car accident. And so he's trying to investigate. And so, so much of the story hinges upon this past narrative and like what was going on in the past that someone would have wanted to kill this guy. Well, he was the mayor, and there might have been malfeasance with the sheriff, who also now wants to be the mayor. There's just, like, a lot of backstory. Mm-hmm. And then in, in the actual episode, what we get is the second murder, which is the murder of the dead guy's dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's our real-time murder. And Jessica has to try to figure out who killed him, and it seems like it's going to be this really gross sheriff. Right. Uh, and it turns out it wasn't at all. And much like last week's episode, the answer is very obvious and in front of our face the whole time. And it's that it was the guy's partner, yep. right? The deputy mayor who killed the mayor because he was doing bad stuff and the mayor found out. And also he wants to be the mayor. Yep. The murderer is coming from a sin- within the office <laughs> or inside the office. Yeah, the only great thing, and maybe I'm delivering, like, the the big hurrah too soon into this podcast episode, but, like, the only good thing that comes out of this is at the very end, we find out that the widow is now going to run for mayor, and she's going to win. Everyone, it's, like, a guarantee that she's going to win. So it's like, yay, we're going to have a woman mayor. Yeah. Otherwise, everyone here is pretty awful. It is true. <laughs> so, as you may have gathered, we're not huge fans of this episode, but... Maybe we could say about a few things that we liked about it, if anything. Yeah, I like that Charlene Tilton is in it from Dallas. I uh, too, yes. I also liked that that Bruce Davison, who yeah. is very famous as the, as the nefarious senator in the new X Men movies. Uh, well, new being the ones that came out in like two thousand. So I was just gonna say, aren't are you talking about movies that are like twenty years? I old? am talking. About movies. <laughs> I was like, that's probably not new though. <laughs> but anyway, um, who's always. Very good at playing charming, charismatic, utterly awful people. And terrible. Yeah. And he That's exactly what he does. And maybe that's why I thought the solution was so obvious. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, as soon as I saw him, I was like, oh, he obviously did it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of those cases where, you know, as we've talked about on this pod many times before, like looking at stars backward, like reading their past yeah. roles through their more recent ones, which is a really interesting sort of inversion of the usual star studies model. So it is, you know, it's kind of neat to watch him be so performative in terms of his charmingness. Like, he puts on the charm offensive from the first to sort of deflect any kind of suspicion. And it's he's quite effective. But it, you know, and for me, that just makes me more suspicious. So I think maybe this is just because I'm a raging lesbian who doesn't trust men. But like... That's a big part of sort it. Sort of the more charming he becomes, the more I'm like, 
<clears throat> not buying right. what you're selling, buddy. This isn't adding up. And meanwhile, I think what the uh, I'll give the episode some credit. Like what it does nicely is that we have the sheriff who's like an absolute caricature. Mm-hmm. He's one dimensional cartoon of evil. And so you're like, oh, well, this deputy guy seems like a 1970s new man. Like, he's so sympathetic and, like, earnest. And the sheriff, well, he's, like, the old school bad guy who thinks he gets to run the town. Mm-hmm. And, you know, martial law prevails. And then what we find out is, like, actually, the sheriff did have some redeeming qualities. Right. And he didn't do some of the bad things that we thought he did. Um, so I think the episode is sort of playing with those stereotypes of masculinity in some way. That's kind of interesting. Or maybe not, I mean, masculinity, but I think the episode wouldn't frame it as playing with images of masculinity. It would think of it as, like, images of law and order. Yeah, so, I mean, there's, you know, there's also Wayne Beeler, who's the sort of deputy, you know, speaking of masculinity and sort of toxic masculinity, because there's that scene where he's in he's in bed with the secretary of the courthouse. I think that's basically what she is. Yeah. and the, And he's, like, basically, like, you can leave when I tell you you can leave. Like, he's very domineering and very sort of epi- epitomizes the toxic masculinity that we've, you know, argued that Marta Shiro itself is very antithetical to throughout it, you know, from the very beginning. He's clearly abusive and right. he's clearly manipulating her. And then, um, and he's married and has a wife with a baby on the way. And she, the secretary, played by Charlene Tilden, um, is just under his spell and at one point she even tells jessica jessica's like what the hell's wrong with you and she's like i'm in love with him uh and so i think yeah the episode is definitely like exploring that dynamic a little bit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he Which is, is bad right <laughs> he actually yes. is a bad guy yeah but of course you know there's also marie windsor who come who's on you know another sort of holdover from classic hollywood and and yes. and much like you know, we talked about with Dorothy Lamore last episode. She doesn't really have a lot to do. She's sort of running this gambling as this underground gambling establishment. But there's just something really delicious about the way she delivers her lines, and I think part of she's fantastic. Yes, and I it's it's the same way with like um of that Avon De Carlo way back in the prison episode. Where it's like I wanted to see more of her just because there's mm. that it's not just the class the residual like Hollywood glamour, but there's like the deep husky voice that sounds like she's been smoking a pack of like menthols for the last like twenty years. Oh yeah. There's, there's also just she's one of those character those character actors who uh, you could just sink her teeth into these lines. And I would have liked to have seen more of those because they were more interesting than some of the other characters that we meet throughout the show. Definitely. I agree with you about her sort of persona and her delivery. And then I also think just narratively, there's a lot that was unexplored about her character. Mm. Like, why is she running this gambling ring? How did she develop this relationship with the sheriff? I think this it could have been really interesting to give her a little bit more screen time. Um, and I, she also gives me like Johnny Guitar vibes. Yes, yes. That's, Teach. Yep. Be- I think it's just because it's like a woman in a man's like she's running the bar. She's running the gambling club. She's telling the sheriff what to do. She's just like tough and sassy and badass with this deep voice. Like, right. It was so cool. I mean, because there's something to this episode that's very, I would like to call it like small town or rural noir. Like, you know, because there is, you know, Jessica's mm-hmm. sort of skirting around this dark, seedy underbelly. Like, we see the shots of the of the gambling den. You know, we have this, not a madam, but she's, you know, this den mother for this gambling establishment. So there's, and, you know, there's corruption mm-hmm. within the courthouse, like, you know, within the county government or the city government. I mean, so it's very interestingly, like, playing with the tropes that we associate with noir, noir but putting them in a small town setting. And I would have liked to have seen more of that, but as you 
like said at the top, so much of this episode relies on what's happened in the past that I think that kind of short circuits mm-hmm. what could have been more interestingly done in the present just because, you know, everything is about mm-hmm. the dead guy. And it's that sort of that happened off screen, Jim. And so yeah. I I understand like what, to a degree why it, that was necessary because it gives Jessica the excuse to come to town and all that. But I think it ultimately, you know, hampers the episode in other important ways in terms of its narrative. Well, it's interesting that you framed it as a noir. I mean, as we're talking about this episode, I'm starting to like it a lot more. Yeah, I yeah. <laughs> Um, so ultimately what Jessica finds is there's this mysterious scrap of paper from Jim's wallet with like a code on it. And they spend a lot of the episode trying to figure out what, what this code is referencing. Is it a cipher? Is it a serial number? Um, and the secretary sort of redeems herself by explaining that this is a code they used to use in the office to reference legal books. And she goes and pulls out the book and Jim has hidden evidence in there of the gambling club. Um, and so, and then there was also a reference to a corrupt attorney, and that was him pointing the finger at the deputy mayor, and um, the deputy mayor figured that out, and so that's ultimately why he killed him. And I think, um, I don't know where I was going with that, other than that's the thing that happened in the episode, and like also it sort of redeemed Charlene Tilton's character. But other than that, I don't really know why I brought that up. I'm not gonna lie. Well, I mean, it's also just one of those, it's not quite, it's not really a MacGuffin necessarily, but it's like one of those neat little moments where there's an object that has some sort of totemic significance that we only gradually becomes revealed for what it actually is. Yeah, so thank you for making me not sound like I was just randomly mentioning things. I appreciate that. I was mentioning it because it had totemic value. Yes. (laughs) We are complementary, you and I. That's why we run this show together. Not often. Not often, but we ha- but these moments make it all worthwhile. Right? <laughs> the other thing that this episode did, though, this one did piss me off, is that in addition to this cipher code thing, the other key piece of evidence was a ring. And mm. the dead guy's dad had taken out this ring. You know, he was trying to get back the personal effects from the sheriff. He gets it. He, one of the things is this ring. He puts it on. He's telling Jessica about this ring. And then he is murdered like that night. And there's this whole thing with um, somebody remembering somebody said he was wearing a ring the night he died, but he never wore a ring. He only put it on the moment before when he was talking to Jessica. So if you knew he was wearing a ring, you had to have been the one who murdered him. TJ, I know they do this a lot, but like, I just, I lose my patience over stuff like this. Like, what are the odds that Jessica is going to remember one teensy tiny little offhand comment somebody happened to make? And it magically becomes the most important piece of evidence. Like, what? Come on. Yeah. Even by the standards of, you know, as, we, as we've as we noted before, that, well, you couldn't possibly have known, noticed said detail unless you were the one who did it. Right. This one feels a little bit feeble. It's, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it's one of the, like, it's, as I, you know, when we were doing the pregame, and I, and I will say that I agree with you that I like this episode more as we talk about it, but it does seem to me that, like, it has all the ingredients for a successful episode, but they don't quite match up hmm. in a way that I would think would elevate it to greatness. Otherwise, it's, well, you know, it's a sort of, I think of it as a filler episode. Like, it's not groundbreaking. It's not a bread and butter, like, Cabot Cove episode, mm-hmm. but it's not one of the sort of exemplary outside of Cabot Cove episodes either. And so I think part of that is just because the pieces, including the, you know, this kind of minuscule clue, don't necessarily pack the punch that they usually do. Mm -hmm. 
I agree. I, you know, I think so. I think these rural episodes often tend to be filler in a way like they don't seem, they just always seem sort of very disconnected from the universe to me. And Jessica's always going to these places for these weird tenuous connections. And like, I don't know in this one, I'm confused about how she knows these people in the first place. Yes, but I, I want to back up for a minute and talk about these rural episodes because I know that you. Oh, okay. Because I, 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 you know, in the pregame, I know you, and I know your hostility of toward Powder Keg and toward some of the other rural ones. Which, as a rural person, I can understand because I think what you're picking up on is that Murdy Schroet feels a little uncomfortable with rural rurality, and I think it's because. It's harder for, I don't want to say city folks, but say coastal folks who would probably populate in the writer's room to really get a handle on sort of the nebulousness of what rural life looks like. And so I think that that's part of what you're, because it's less easily categorizable or, you know, convincingly portrayed than say Cabot Cove, which is not, it's Mm -hmm. rural, but it's also a small town. It's Northeast. Like there's already an established like set of conventions that we sort of associate with small town New England life. Whereas I think that when they sort of migrate out into the hinterlands, the provinces, if you will, mm-hmm. they get a little bit less, there's a less firm grasp about what they're doing and what they're trying to do. Yeah. And I think, I, I think they often leave us with a, a, a sort of message that rural places are deeply, deeply corrupt and that power is often concentrated mm-hmm. in the hands of one or two people, usually white guys, not always. In the case of Powder Keg, it's not. But we see, like, the one sheriff of color is just being utterly destroyed by the people he's supposed to be keeping, you know, the peace with. Um, and mostly, though, what we get are these, like, the guy like the sheriff in this episode who are just, like, they take the law into their own hands. They they run places like their own little empire uh, and it just doesn't make me that excited, frankly, to leave a city. <laughs> like, these places seem pretty awful. Right. You know, because one of the first things we get is the uh, the, ultimate, the eventual murder victim sort of trying to get his car, his son's car back that's been impounded by the sheriff, who right. basically just acts like an asshole for no clear reason other than that he can. That he can, and he didn't like the dead guy. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's why I characterize it as noir, because noir also tends to be a very cynical... So they had to go get a court order to get the guy's, like, wallet out of the car. Right. And then the car, like, they they suspect that he's been murdered, and the sheriff has the car demolished, so they can't use it as evidence. They can't investigate the car at all. Right. Like, this is horrifying. Terrifying, frankly, to me. It makes me, like, terrified when I have to drive across the country. Right. Like, God forbid something happened to my car and I get stuck in one of these places. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but... Murder Shred is not reality. Like, I don't know if you, it's not, a, it's not an ethnography of small town rural life. I understand that. I'm just saying that I think when we but, look sort of overall across the scope of these many rural episodes that the series did in its 12 seasons, like it, right. it's definitely painting a very negative portrayal of life yeah, no, and that's, outside that's of cities. I'm, yeah, as try that in a small town, as they say. Um, oh, no, don't. Now we're definitely going to get letters. Well, no, because I mean, I think that that's one of the things that this is evocative of, of the, as you say, like the dark, violent nature of small towns, like, which is interesting, given the extent to which like Reagan was so, you know, morning know. in America and all that Dude, stuff. Morning in America, right? The small town is great. It's the heartland. So yeah, this is one of those moments that's working very much in opposition to that and showing the extent to which even small towns and rural 
America, whether it's Idaho or wherever powder keg takes place, I can't recall right offhand. Like wh- wherever these things are taking place, they're much more sinister, much more corrupt, much more venal than I think the dominant Reagan ethos would allow for. Maybe this is why I'm the way I am, because I grew up watching this stuff and I believe that. Mm, and you're a snob. And I'm a snob. So um, last episode, we talked about how invincible Jessica Fletcher is. Mm-hmm. And in this episode, we have something really horrible happen to her. Which is? She is driving with the deputy mayor and a semi-truck starts bearing down on them and runs them off the road. Right. So she's in a car accident and we see her. We actually do see her. Um, she says she's bruised and battered. And we see her um, sort of like, you know, moving around as if she has a lot of aches and pains and putting herself to bed. So I, I appreciate that the episode didn't just have her like immediately bounce back the way they did when she was shoved down the stairs. Mm-hmm. But um, it's really sinister because we don't often see Jessica's physical person in we see it being threatened and then something always comes to stop it. We don't yes. actually see her getting like this close to the edge very often. Yeah, it's kind of it's quite viscerally terrifying. And I think mm-hmm. it plays very much into this episode's ethos of just sort of impending violence or like there's always that threat of some sort of violent act hovering. Mm-hmm. You know, what obviously there's the murder, but as we just alluded to, like there's the sheriff and his sort of sinister presence like when law enforcement itself becomes corrupted. You know, right. That's that bears with it the specter of violence just by its very nature. And of course it wasn't the sheriff. It was the right. deputy drove the truck on the order of the deputy mayor um, because he's really corrupt. But it's I mean, it's really scary. And I think, you know, to your point, Teach, we talked uh, we didn't talk much about the IRS agent in the last episode, No Accounting for Murder. But we mm-hmm. sort of had the IRS agent as the outside force of reason and law and order and i think in this one Mm -hmm. too we have the state police right because they can't trust the sheriff so they go to the state police who thankfully does intervene and we do see like a little bit of control coming back to this situation in this town that's in complete turmoil um and what i like is the ending when jessica is confronting the guy she now knows is the murderer and she like tips him off that there's going to be a raid on the gambling club because she knows that he'll call the gambling club and and tell them. But, of course, the gambling club's already been raided. And now they also can arrest him because they know he's in on it. And so it, it's a nice reminder. Like, if your own town is so bad and the sheriff himself is the one who's supposed to be maintaining law, but he's doing illegal things, like, where can you go? It's like, okay, thankfully, there is someone you can appeal to. As a rule, like, even though law enforcement and murder she wrote, can either be bumbling like Amos or confrontational with Jessica for the most part, like it's not the institution itself that's called into question. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And so it's very interesting in this episode that we get to sort of panoply or mosaic, if you will, of different kinds of law enforcement. Obviously we have the sheriff who's corrupt, but not as you say, complicit in the murder or in anything like he's not himself, you know, a criminal. He's just an asshole. An asshole and a bully. He's done some illegal things, but mostly, yeah, a bully is a good way to describe him. Right. Um, As opposed to, say, the state trooper, you know, who is much more ethical and upright and willing to actually do his job and, you know, do the right thing. Even though Mitchell Ryan, the guy who plays him, plays an asshole in the Golden Girls. (laughs) Yes, he does. When he plays Rex Huntington, Blanche's very (laughs) abusive boyfriend. But that's, you know... (laughs) 
I think a lot about physiognomy and like the way that actors look, and he does sort of have the look of a sort of upright law enforcement kind of person, like with his square jaw, you know, that silver hair. Mm-hmm. Like he looks the part, which I think helps lend his performance um, a gravitas that helps us as audiences to trust him in the same way that Jessica clearly does. So let's talk a little bit about the episode title. Yes. When this title flashes on screen, I immediately, I, I was watching with my dad and I looked over and I said, well, this is going to be a terrible episode. And he said, how do you know? And I said, because they couldn't even come up with a clever title. Right. But um, actually it is a little bit clever in a way. Like, so the, the, the idea was that the sheriff had been elected through the cemetery vote, which is when you falsify the ballot with names of dead people from tombstones. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, playing into that idea that like much of this episode hinges on a backstory that happened before we even got there. But I think it is a little bit clever. Um, I'm not sure that it necessarily had much to do with the actual murder and the rest of the episode. Right. Um, but it's interesting to me. Yeah. It's one of those things, you know, we talk a lot about the, the way that murder she wrote draws on existing tropes within television. And certainly the idea of, the, as you say, the cemetery vote is one I think that comes up pretty consistently in television, particularly when it envisions, like, voting. You know, Corruption. Corruption. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, may help explain why Trump's big lie was so convincing to so many people because they've been conditioned by, <laughs> by television to believe that all elections carry within the specter of being corrupted by the cemetery vote. So is that, that's a thing. I see, I've, I don't think that I've heard of that. I've heard of, um, uh, like, especially like Tammany Hall back in the day, like taking people, taking homeless people off the street and giving them money and a meal to go vote for your guy or Mm -hmm. something. Well, I mean, it happens in the Golden Girls because Sophia recruits dead people to sign up (laughs) for the petition to not have the the oak tree destroyed it comes up in the simpsons because sideshow bob wins his election by recruiting dead people voting which i know is a little yeah which i know is a little later but i'm saying that like sideshow bob is so scary he is quite and very nefarious but my point is is that you know pop culture is is concerned Mm -hmm. with and draws upon this and you know when i was making fun of you earlier for you know maybe you don't realize that murder she wrote isn't real (laughs) but the reason I bring all this up is because I think that TJ, TJ, did you know that melodrama is I queer? I did know that, but I've heard I've heard it through the grapevine. But my point is, is that I th- even though people may not necessarily believe everything they see on TV, I do think that fictions like Murder She Wrote do sort of help cement our idea, like our ideas of how the world works, even if we don't consciously think about it. Yep. Like, it's on some degree, we all are familiar with the trope of. Dead, dead people voting. If you encounter the trope enough, and especially if you're right. a kid and you encounter it in your formative years, and you see it over and over, like, it registers to you, right? Absolutely. Right. It's like when we were talking about the last episode with like receipts and taxes. Like, I thought mm-hmm. the receipts were going to play a much bigger role <laughs> in my life as a tax-paying adult. Than <laughs> yeah. And that the IRS is always out to catch you doing bad things, and you might yeah. accidentally do right. a bad thing and not know it, and then get arrested or something. Yeah, that's yep, not going to yes. happen. That's not how it works. End up in debt. End up in debtor's yeah, prison no. or whatever. <laughs> it's not how that works. <laughs> so, anyways, I just wanted to, to piggyback on what you were saying about you know the, the cemetery vote, and I will say that it's not a very compelling title. It's not as catchy as some of the other ones they've. Come What's up your with. favorite title we've encountered so far? Oh, I don't know. I'd have to like. You need to see a list of episode titles in front of you. I need to see a list of titles. What's the worst episode title that we've encountered so far? 
Simon says, definitely. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Both because it's the most recent one and also just because I, I hate, I just hate Simon it. says, color me dead. Why do you hate that so much? Because it has, I mean, for that to work, it would have to be like, there had to be some ev- evocation of the game Simon says. Like, This is like, how I feel about cemetery vote. Yeah, exactly. There was no cemetery vote. Right. It's not a part of the plot. So no. t- <laughs> titles ideally should have at least something to do with the plot. Yeah, they should. And like no accounting for murder. Yes, it's exactly. Set in an accountant's firm. Exactly. Makes sense. People are going to be very confused about why I interrupted you to tell you that melodrama was queer. It's a very long-standing inside joke between the two of us. <laughs> it is a very long-standing inside joke. Um, the shorthand is just when someone says something obvious. Right. That they, is very obvious to this, an entire group, but except for the person who's mentioning it, who acts as if they are making some sort their of like, revelation. Right. It's a grand pronouncement, like they're bringing down the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. Like, you know, that's been a joke for us for almost ten years. It. Has. <laughs> and the best part is the person that we developed that joke from probably does has no idea. Definitely has no idea. Probably doesn't even like. I don't know. They probably don't even exist anymore. Like, not as a human, think about I mean, as someone who, like, researches <laughs> melodrama, this is just getting worse and worse. Oh, they're probably dead, who knows, yeah. <laughs> I hope not. They're a very nice person. They were subject to their own murder she wrote episode. <laughs> um, okay, last thought, though. I am very confused about how Jessica knows these people, because we're told that she is friends with Jim and Linda. Jim is the first victim. Linda is his wife, who's now going to run for mayor. And that she knew them back east, so presumably they lived in Cabot Cove at some point. But Jim's father does not know Jessica. Right. So, I mean, I guess Linda's family could be from back east, but nobody ever mentions that in the episode. Or did Jim and Linda just, like, move away from home and randomly plunk down in Cabot Cove, Maine for a couple of years? It's very weird to me. I have two theories that could explain this. One, there's a very significant Cabot Cove diaspora. So like, <laughs> we need to because do the- everyone gets murdered, people are fleeing town. So there's uh, we uh, like, we need to write an ethnography, of the Cabot Cove diaspora, like just sort of outlining <laughs> the many people who have moved from Cabot Cove, Cabot Cove diasporic studies, like. <laughs> the second uh-huh. is actually, which you know, the Cabot Cove diaspora is sort of a centrifugal force. Mm-hmm. And the Cabot Cove attraction is the centripetal force. Like, it's drawing people in to Mm -hmm. the Cabot Cove orbit, if you will. So that there will be more people to murder. Exactly. And what draws people, though, do you think? Like, why, if you're from Rando, Idaho, would you end up in Cabot Cove, Maine? Well, what's his name? The one who, the famous revolutionary person, uh, uh, Peabody. Oh, sure. Because of Joshua Peabody. (laughs) I mean, if that isn't a motive to move to small town Maine, I don't know what is. <laughs> okay. That is a fantastic conclusion to this episode, it my friend. It sure is. <laughs> so, for the Cabot Cove Gazette, I'm TJ West. I'm Bridget Keys. And we will see you next week. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs>